listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. It's Friday morning on May 8, 2020 in Seoul, and joining me via Skype is my guest today, professional wrestling superstar Eric Bischoff. Eric Bischoff is a major figure in the world of professional wrestling, formerly the president of World Championship Wrestling, and was one of the brains behind the 1995 Collision in Korea event, which was the world's largest professional wrestling event. This is what we'll be talking about today. Eric has written a book about his life in wrestling, called Controversy Creates Cash, which was a, uh, a big hit on the New York Times bestseller list for a short time, I'm assured by Eric, and it was published in 2006. Thanks for coming on the show today, Eric. Very happy to do it. I appreciate the invitation. First of all, for our listeners, what was Collision in Korea, or the official name, the Pyongyang International Sports and Culture Festival for Peace? Well, that's what it was. Uh, it was marketed as such in uh, North Korea, but it was marketed uh, in Japan and here in the United States as Collision in Korea. And uh, yeah, and so basically, it was a, a two-day pro wrestling event, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It took place over two days. I think our first night we had about one hundred and seventy thousand people in attendance, and the second night it was actually one hundred and eighty thousand. So. The total attendance for the event was 350,000 people. That's amazing. And that's how uh, I first came across um, so the, the details of that event. It would have been around 2000 or 2001. I was in Melbourne, Australia, uh, going through a bookstore and picked up a book about wrestling. Uh, and somewhere in the middle of it was a very, very sh short article about uh, the world's largest professional wrestling event and it, that had happened in Pyongyang. And I'd never heard of it at this time. And I'd already lived in South Korea for three years, uh, but I'd never heard about this event that took place in 95. And so uh, ever since then, I've been intrigued and tried to, to pick up more details about it. Uh, it was held at the, uh, at the May Day Stadium, which is quite an impressive uh, arena, isn't it? It is indeed. I had never been to uh, a stadium that big. Uh, it was an outdoor arena. I believe it was a, primarily a soccer stadium. But it was uh, an amazing, amazing complex, to be sure. Yeah. Now, you said uh, that this event was built both in America and in Japan as, in, as collision in Korea, and that's because it was jointly run by the uh, World Championship Wrestling, WCW, of which you are the president, and New Japan Pro Wrestling, founded by Antonio Inoki. How did this collaboration come about? Well, I had um, a, a long-standing relationship with uh, Antonio Inoki and New Japan Pro Wrestling. We had been business partners for a number of years. And Antonio Inoki, if you know anything about Antonio Inoki, he was trained by a wrestler by the name of Ricky Dosan. Ricky Dosan was originally from North Korea and wrestled in Japan, which was kind of unique if you know much about the – North Korean and Japanese history. It was very unique. And Antonio Inoki, in addition to be, being come, becoming one of the more successful and famous professional wrestlers uh, throughout Asia, primarily in Japan, was also a member of the Japanese diet, equivalent to the United States Senate, I guess, here in America. Uh, not sure what the, the parallel would be in Australia, but uh, he, was a, he was a politician and a professional wrestler and a showman. And Antonio Inoki believed, I think, that by promoting this event in North Korea with the North Korean government who sponsored it all, that it would be a politically smart move for Antonio Inoki in, in terms of his political aspirations and his political career in Japan. And I, I believed he thought that 
putting on such an amazing event that no one had ever done before would also be be good be a good way to market New Japan Pro Wrestling. So it had you know dual purposes I think for Antonio Noki. Personally, it was a great way to market WCW and establish WCW as not only a, a dominant organization in the United States, because at the time I think we were, if we weren't the number one wrestling company in the world, we were very close to it at the time. And I thought that it would be a great opportunity to help establish WCW as more of a, more of an international brand as opposed to a domestic United States brand. Now, it also came uh, historically at an interesting time for America uh, because it was just about six months after the signing of the agreed framework between North Korea and the United States, which was you know, going to, uh, to lead to uh, a solution to the nuclear, prob- uh, the nuclear problem of North Korea uh, and better relations between North Korea and America. And there was even talk at one stage um, of there being you know, uh, mutual embassies uh, or at least consulates set up in each other's capitals. Did any of this have any effect on your uh, thinking at the time or were you aware of, of all this going on at the same time? To be honest, I wasn't aware of, of a lot of the political developments between the United States and North Korea. I've always been a fairly avid consumer of current events and political events, so I, I was aware and certainly aware of the history between the United States and North Korea and, and spent a lot of time reading the newspaper, but I, I didn't dig in too deeply, so I wasn't as familiar with the developments as I wish I would have been. I probably would have enjoyed the trip more because it would have been more intriguing to me. But to be honest about it, I, I wasn't paying real close attention at the time. And it's also interesting that it, it happened uh, less than a full year after the death of uh, North Korea's eternal president, Kim Il-sung. And, and while that country was still in a, uh, a three-year mourning period, uh, was that something that, you were, um, that was obvious while you were there? It was very obvious. In fact, it was one of the things that struck me almost immediately because the country was still in mourning. One of the first things that occurred once our plane landed in North Korea, and we flew from Tokyo to North Korea on a uh, North Korean military transport plane. And when we landed in Pyongyang, uh, we were greeted, obviously, by the North Korean government and representatives of the government, uh, I guess the North Korean version of the CIA or, or Secret Service, if you will. There were formalities of arrival and things like that, pleasantries, but we were immediately uh, separated into pairs with our North Korean government attaché, and we were all whisked off and and had to go pay homage to the dear leader, and which all of that was filmed. There were you know North Korean news cameras there. They followed us everywhere we went, obviously, and tried to do interviews with us and things like that. So. It was very apparent that the country was still in mourning, and uh, we were required, uh, and, and we, we, we were happy to do so, uh, participate. You mentioned a little bit about the motivations for, uh, for Antonio Noki in, in doing the event, and also f- of your own in going uh, ahead with the event. Do you have any idea what motivated the North Korean government? I certainly didn't know then, but I think if we reflect now, I think North Korea has always wanted to put the best face forward they could to the rest of the world to prove to the rest of the world that they were indeed a civilized, developed country, um, to prove to the world that they, 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 they had power um, and 
deserved respect. And I think by having an event of this magnitude, knowing that it was going to get a lot of media coverage and, and fairly, I think the North Koreans looked at it as a great opportunity for, dare I say, propaganda. There was a lot of that taking place while we were there. There are a number of different conflicting accounts of how much the event cost, um, how much it made, who paid, and who made money off of it, and if indeed any money was made. Uh, for example, author uh, Jasper Becker claims that North Korea paid $15 million to host it, and I've also heard of $15.5 million as the figure made from ticket sales, both of which seem unlikely. Are you able to shed any light on this? Well, I... I think anybody that knows anything about North Korea would scoff at the idea that there was $15 million in ticket sales because the North Koreans, the, the population of North, North Korea doesn't really have any money. Um, one of the things that struck me when I was there immediately was just how poor and destitute the country was. Um, people were literally eating their dead in the outskirts of some of the bigger cities in North Korea because they were starving. They, you know, North Korea had been in a severe drought, I think, for five or seven years uh, prior to, to, to this date when we arrived, and they were suffering greatly. So there, there really was no economy. It's a communist country. There really was no economy, per se, or discretionary income amongst the citizens. So whoever would have reported that there were $15 million in ticket sales um, clearly didn't really understand what they were writing about or talking about. In terms of the actual cost of the event, I, I would have no idea. Again, the, the event was staged by the North Korean government. Um, the North Koreans flew us over. You know, They flew us over from the United States and then from Japan over to North Korea. So all of the expenses were paid. The, obviously, the hotels were paid and that type of thing. From a revenue point of view, there was no revenue to WCW. Now, Bear in mind that this event coincided uh, with an event that WCW and New Japan was promoting in Tokyo, and I think in Fukuoka, I may be wrong about that, but we had a, several events that we were co-promoting in Japan, and there was a tremendous amount of revenue coming into WCW for that, but there was no compensation or revenue generated to WCW from North Korea because of the nature of the event. To my understanding was that the North Koreans paid for all of the expenses. Antonio Inoki was participating more from a public relations point of view and a political point of view than he was in, in terms of a financial perspective. So I, if any money changed hands between uh, North Korea and Antonio Inoki, that would be news to me. Mm. That's interesting because normally when they do international uh, events, bringing in large numbers of visitors, for example, they have every April the, uh, uh, I think it's the Mansude or Mangyong, I always get them confused, uh, the Memorial Marathon. They have a marathon every year early in April before the, the leader's birthday. Uh, and that's a, you know, a, a revenue raiser for, for the North Korean government. And that's normally how they see interactions with, uh, with foreign visitors as a way of earning hard, uh, well, much needed foreign cash. Uh, but in your, in your case, in the, uh, the case of collision in Korea, that wasn't the case, you're saying? Not from my perspective, it wasn't. Again, the details of Antonio's Anoki's deal with, with uh, North Korea was not something I was aware of. But from my perspective, all of the money that I made was for promoting our events in Tokyo or in Japan, and there was no compensation to WCW from North Korea. 
At the time, d- before you went there, did you or WCW lawyers have to talk to uh, U.S. government officials to make sure that this was okay according to U.S. laws and sanctions, or did you just say, what the heck, and go ahead? I just said, what the heck, and went ahead. In fact, you know, I worked for Turner Broadcasting at the time. WCW was owned by Turner Broadcasting, and of course, Turner Broadcasting uh, owns CNN, uh, which at the time was, uh, this was before Fox really became a very big news outlet around the world. CNN at the time was the largest international uh, news platform in the world. I had access. I could walk right across the office building and talk to you know executives over at CNN and get their opinions and ask their advice. And I did that, but I didn't. I didn't want to reach out to any government officials for fear of being denied the opportunity. There's a saying in the wrestling industry, better. Better to apologize than to ask for permission. And that's not just true in the wrestling world, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, I decided rather than asking for permission, I would just beg for forgiveness when I got back. And that's exactly what I did because I was afraid that I would be turned down, even by executives of my own company higher than myself. I didn't really tell anybody in my own company what I was doing. Was there any blowback from the government when you returned? None whatsoever. Uh, Now, a crew from CNN, I think, went in with you, didn't they? There was a a lot of journalists, but also from CNN that went for collision in Korea. They didn't go with us. There was, uh, and there wasn't a lot of journalists in in North Korea at the time. In fact, there were very, very few. One journalist that was there, uh, and, and he was stationed in North Korea. He didn't go over there with us. He was already there when we got there. His name was Mike Chinoy. Oh, yeah quite an active and well-known reporter and journalist. And he was stationed in North Korea. And I, you know, I I met with Mike and we had dinner together several times and he, he he did kind of follow us around and, and, and cover us, but uh, not to any great, not to any great extent. Are you still in touch with Mike Chinoy these days? I am not. I haven't seen Mike since I left North Korea. Okay, yeah, he's one of the uh, the people I'm hoping to have on the podcast very soon. So uh, if, uh, if I get him on, I'll say hi from you. Please do. Uh, now, in the uh, how long was the planning process leading up to the event itself? For me, it was really you know my involvement was really only several months. And again, you have to understand that I had been doing a lot of business with New Japan on a pretty regular basis for several years. So our process of planning and organizing was fairly efficient and and fluid. But the the one aspect that I did bring to the equation that was unique was bringing Muhammad Ali over as a part of WCW. That was a very important thing for Antonio Inoki and I think for the North Koreans. I had a relationship with Muhammad Ali and his wife, Lonnie, so it was relatively easy for me to to make that happen. But it was probably only a couple of months between the first time we had a conversation about it and between that, that time and the time we landed in Pyongyang. Now I um, I've seen a, a a pirate copy of the uh, the two hour special on Collision in Korea, and in the on air commentary, I think it was you said you made a point of how few Americans had been to Pyongyang since the war ended, and uh, of course uh, Jimmy Carter famously was there the year before you, and uh, the late evangelist Billy Graham was there a couple of years. Uh, how did it feel to you to be a part of such a small group of Americans who'd visited North Korea uh, without getting shot? You know, it was really fascinating for me. And I I think one of the reasons I was so excited about going to North Korea is, is number one, from the time I was a a small child, 
in elementary school, I was all, I've always been fascinated with history and with other cultures. Probably one of the few things I was ever really interested in in school was history and, and other cultures. So the opportunity, and keep in mind, I'm right now I'm 65 years old. So I'm a, I'm a product of the 50s and the 60s, which means I'm a product of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union during that period of time. And I remember so distinctly as a young child in the 60s in our history classes and world study classes, we were constantly being bombarded with facts and information about communist countries and how oppressive they were and, and how much different they were than, than the United States. And I guess I don't want to call it propaganda, but clearly – the United States, the education system in the United States had a very distinct and, and negative way of, of positioning, you know, communism. That's just the way we all grew up. It was the middle of the Cold War. By the time, you know, I became an adult, I was always fascinated with dictatorships because it was so much different than what I grew up with and what I had experienced as, as a young boy, as a young adult and, and, and as adult in, in my mid forties, I think when I was in North Korea, I might've been 40 years old or 42 years old. So it, I was fast. I really wanted to experience for myself what a communist, a true communist country was like. But then by 1995, of course, you know, 96, whatever, whatever year it was, the Berlin wall came down, you know, it was no longer, you know, going to the Soviet Union or what was then became Russia was no longer quite the same thing because Russia had become more westernized and and certainly there was it was much different than the United States. But I wanted to go somewhere like Cuba or somewhere like North Korea that was still very much like the 1950s and 60s model, if you will, of communism. And that's one of the things I was so excited about. And it was just it was so fascinating. It, it still is to this day. I think going to, of all the things I've been able to do in my life and that I'm very, very grateful for, I think going to North Korea will always be the most fascinating experience that I've ever had. Was it difficult for you to uh, to persuade um, wrestlers and Muhammad Ali to come along and get involved in this? Muhammad Ali was actually quite quite easy. You know, if you know anything about Muhammad Ali, Muhammad. Muhammad had a very unique view of the world and, and view of people and different cultures. And he, he, was, he was a very peaceful man, and, and he wanted to do whatever he could to contribute to better understanding between cultures and governments, individuals. So when I reached out to Muhammad and presented the opportunity to him, he was – I don't think he hesitated five minutes to agree to go and didn't really ask too many questions. He, he jumped right on board. He was very excited about it, enthusiastic the whole time he was there about being there because he, he really did want to promote peace and promote better understanding between races and cultures and governments. Uh, it's one of the things I love about Muhammad Ali. You know, the, I guess one of the other things about this trip that means so much to me is, although I had gotten to know Muhammad Ali prior to this trip, I got to spend an extraordinary amount of one-on-one -on -one time with him, and clearly one of the most fascinating people that I've ever met, and to this day, one of the people probably in my life who I've met that I have 
really the most respectful of because of Muhammad's view of the world and how much he believed in peace and how much he believed that the barriers between cultures really can be broken down once you talk to each other, once you get to know each other, once you start to look at each other, not as enemies first, but as people first. I, I, I could go on and all. I can go on and on just about that. I, I understand from Ric Flair's autobiography to be the man that uh, Muhammad Ali, despite being a man of peace, became frustrated and annoyed sometimes by his experiences uh, with the North Koreans. And I'll just read a little excerpt for our listeners. Uh, this is from Ric Flair's book. Because of the ravages of Parkinson's disease, it was difficult to understand Muhammad Ali when he spoke. But at one function, we were sitting at a big round table with a group of North Korean luminaries when one. One of the guys started rambling on about the moral superiority of North Korea and how they could take out the United States or Japan any time they wanted. Suddenly, Ali piped up, clear as a bell, no wonder we hate these mother-somethings. Do you recall that incident? I do not. And without disparaging Ric Flair's book or whoever wrote it, you know, look up. <laughs> Whenever wrestlers write books, you can rest assured with, with a small handful of exceptions um, there were other people writing the book and someone like Ric Flair or, and even myself, um, I, I had a writer as well. Uh, the writers have a tendency to make things a little more dramatic than they sometimes really were. I'm not suggesting that it didn't happen, but I will say that I was completely unaware of it until I read it in Rick's book. Hmm. Um, I'm just curious. This has nothing to do with the, with the rest of the interview, but uh, who would be a wrestler who wrote the whole book by themselves without having a ghostwriter or an assistant writer? Mick Foley. Ah, Mick Foley. Okay, I really should read his book. Yeah. Um, was it important to the North Koreans to have Muhammad Ali there? Were they really keen to have him um, on board? I think so. Again, I didn't communicate directly with the North Korean government. That was Antonio Inoki. So mm -hmm. I, I, I can only assume that that was the case. Uh, what was really interesting to me, though, is you know, being in North Korea, you learn very quickly that there is no outside media influence. There are two, maybe three television uh, station or channels available to the public, and all three of them are run by the government. All three of them are basically propaganda channels. There is no radio. There is no print media. There are no magazines. There is no Western or even outside influence from anywhere, including Japan. And uh, I, I assume there might be some Chinese um, information available. For the most part, the North Korean population is completely isolated from the outside world, which makes them easier to control. They've, they've grown up, and this is, again, one of the most fascinating experiences I've had, is seeing just how brainwashed the North Korea population is because they don't know any better. It would be like you know, locking a small child you know, in a room for their entire life and telling him the world was one way, and then the minute they get to walk out the door as an adult, they realize the world's completely different than everything that they've been told. That's what it's like in North Korea. When you've got people who are you know, young kids and into their teens and 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, anybody born after 1952, whenever the Korean War ended, 53, whatever year it was, um, have all been Thoroughly, I don't mean a little brainwashed. I mean thoroughly brainwashed, and their respective views of the world are so distorted. 
not even distorted isn't even the right word. There's, they just don't have any idea what the outside world is really like. The only thing they know is how, is is what the North Korean government has told them. And I'm going to give you one quick example. I unfortunately I won't be able to stay on this podcast real long, but I'm going to give you one really quick example of that. When we were, when we all, I would, when we got to the hotel where all of the talent was staying. Do you remember which hotel and, that was, by the way? I do not. I, I, it was a nice hotel. And it was, was it the right one that's on the island, or was it the one actually in the middle of the city? No, it was in the middle of the city. Twin Towers? Yes. Ah, that's the Cordial yeah. Hotel. Yeah, the most famous one. Yes. And at that time, I used to love to run. You know, I would get up in the morning, usually at five or six, and before the sun would come up, and I'd run five, six, sometimes seven miles is how I like to start my day. And I got up one morning, and put on my sweats and, you know, my exercise gear and decided to go for a morning run through downtown Pyongyang, North Korea. And my North Korean attache, secret service person, CIA, whatever they were, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, wasn't outside my door. I would just, and it was, it was a woman. And I assumed she didn't think I would be up and moving that early because mm -hmm. our itinerary didn't have us doing anything until I think 10 or 11 in the morning. So, I got up early, got dressed, and went by myself and just took off in the dark and went for a jog. And, and I was into the jog for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and the sun started coming. It was a weekday. And the sun started coming up, and as the sun started coming up, the streets then began to fill with North Koreans who were all walking to work. There were no cars, by the way. The only people that had cars were the government, uh, and, and even then they were higher, higher levels of go government. There were very few bicycles. Everybody walked to work. And I, you know, I wasn't thinking about it or I probably wouldn't have done it. But as I'm jogging now, I'm five foot 11 at the time. I probably weighed about 180 pounds. I'm just an average size guy. But compared to a North Korean, I look like Andre the Giant. Mm. I mean, I was so much bigger and I was wearing bright red sweatpants and like a lime green t-shirt. Oh, gosh. I am not very fashion forward. <laughs> <laughs> and the North Koreans, when they walk to work, all of them wear gray suits or dark blue suits or black suits. Very, very conservative. It, didn't, it doesn't matter if you're a butcher or if you work in a factory or whatever it is you do for a living. You wear a suit to work. Once you get to work, you change into your work clothes. If you're a construction worker, for example, you work all day, you go back and you change back into your suit and then you walk home. So the image that you have are all these Koreans in business suits walking, you know, walking to work every morning. And you would assume they're all professionals and most of them, almost all of them are not. But as I'm, as I'm running down the middle of the street at, at, at sunrise, when all these North Koreans were filling the streets, going to work, they looked at me and I looked like a monster to them because this population that was all walking to work, they were in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, had all grown up listening to and reading the propaganda about Westerners, Americans in particular, and how evil we were and how we would rape their women and literally as cannibals eat their children. That's what they're taught. They don't know anything any different. 
They have no critical thinking. They don't question anything. It's what they truly believe. It's almost cult-like. So as I'm running down the middle of the street, sidewalk, these people are looking at me like, like, like Godzilla in a Japanese horror movie. And they were partying, you know, hugging the walls and trying to avoid me. At all. And the, the look of fear in their eyes was something I'll never, ever forget. That's <laughs> uh, a it, it's an amazing story, and yeah, as you said, that this uh, the condition that they've been raised with is uh, that you're a danger. And here you are, not only dressed strangely and and large in size, but you're running, uh, which you know they're walking, and and you're running, uh, perhaps running away from something. They must have, you know, goodness knows what they must have thought. It was it, it was it was fascinating. And the other thing, and I'll just add a little color to this, the school children. Were, were out on the street corners and they were dressed in their school uniforms. And before they would go to school every morning, they would all, they would group up in their, their classes and they would all sing hymns, I guess, or some patriotic song for the dear leader. And, and that's, that's where the fear in their eyes struck me the most because these little children, you know, when a little child looks at you and I'm talking about eight years old, 10 years old, even 12 years old, they look at you and they're they're t- absolutely terrified, like the most terrified look you can ever imagine in someone's face. And that's what I was experiencing. And I, I, I couldn't wait to get back to my hotel. And when I did, my North Korean attache just went absolutely ballistic. Yeah, that's part of the course that you you'll get an earful for uh, for running away from the hotel without uh, having your guide by you. Well, she may be making sandals in a North Korean sandal factory somewhere in the northern part of the country, for all I know. But oh, dear. She, uh, uh, I, I, don't, I, I, don't think, I don't think her superiors were too happy with her either to have you know, one of her responsi- responsibilities running around by herself through the middle of downtown Pyongyang in, in the middle of the week. No, I could imagine. Now, last year I interviewed uh, Morten Travik, who's a uh, North, uh, Norwegian artist and filmmaker, about the time he brought a, an art rock musical group called Leibach to Pyongyang for a concert in August 2015. And he made this really interesting documentary film called Liberation Day, um, in which we see the bureaucratic hoops that he had to go through to hold an artistic event in Pyongyang for a selected audience of elites. And in terms of scale, it was a lot smaller than Collision in Korea. But in terms of headache and frustration, it, it seemed quite high. Um, in, the, in the film of, uh, of Collision in Korea, we don't get much sense of how it how difficult it was to gain approval at every step of the way when producing Collision in Korea. So could you tell us a bit about that? You know, I, I really can't because it was it was very turnkey. When when we got there, you know, it was North Korean camera crews with North Korean directors. We we you know we staged the wrestling portion of it and was able to produce the wrestling portion of it. But literally from the minute we landed to the minute we left, all of those details uh, were provided to us by the North Korean government. So there really wasn't a lot of interface between myself and anybody from the North Korean government or any representatives. Did North Koreans know about kayfabe? No, North Koreans didn't know anything about anything. That was one of the other more fascinating things. you know. And again, it's really hard for me to paint this picture in a way that I think you can really see it in your mind. But North Korea is devoid of color. Going back to when we first arrived 
on the on the military transport. I, I was sitting next to Muhammad Ali when we did this, and we looked out the window. And at the time, I lived in well, I lived in Atlanta, Georgia, but I, I had a home in Arizona. I was very familiar with the desert, and I'd spend a lot of time in the desert. I, I loved to ride horses, and I would ride my horses to the desert. And the desert was very familiar to me, but the North Korean desert is the most desolate desert I've ever seen. There was no sign of life. There were no birds. There was no vegetation. Even in the in the desert, you know that I'm familiar with. There's cactuses and there's cactus flowers and you know there's there there's areas where there's green and you know running water and things like that. The North Korean, you know, in the area in and around Pyongyang Airport where we landed. It was like we were landing in Mars, and it didn't get any better. When you when you get into this, when we got into the city of Pyongyang, it it was devoid of color. It, it was a lot of the buildings I learned while I was there, and I learned even more so afterwards, are really facades. It looks like a very modern city and environment, and some of the buildings are there are there are beautiful buildings and opera houses and things like that. Um, that are very functional, but there is a lot of facades that exist that look like a very impressive building architecturally that really aren't once you get inside. Uh, but all of it is devoid of color. And if you saw the video, or if you saw the tape of our event, it was extremely colorful. Now the North Koreans themselves, if you saw that, that tape, they did a phenomenal job of presenting these, I don't even know what it's called. There's a term for it. I'm just unfamiliar with it. It was like an Olympic opening ceremony where all of the people in the in the stadium all had these cards with images on them. They would hold these cards up at the right time in, in, in unison, and it would look like a dove flying around the stadium or whatever image or message. There was a lot of messaging going on there, and I don't read Korean, so I, I had no idea what it was, but I'm sure it was political in nature. Uh, but it, it was absolutely fascinating. But bear in mind, the North Koreans that came to the event had never seen professional wrestling before. And they weren't familiar with the entertainment aspect of it. Not the, at the all. Theater. Not at all. It was completely alien to them, and they had no idea how to react to it. <laughs> as far as you're aware, was any of it uh, screened on North Korean television, or was it just a live audience that got to see it? To my knowledge, it was just a live audience. Hmm. Now, uh, when the event was announced in uh, in 1994, the headline bout, I'm told, was supposed to be a boxer versus wrestler reboot with George Foreman taking on uh, Antonio Inoki. Can you shed any light on Foreman's uh, involvement in the event and why that didn't go ahead and why he didn't end up on the trip? I'm not even sure that that's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't, but I had never heard of that before until a couple of years ago. And I know George Foreman. I've I've done business with George Foreman, and I know I, and I know George Foreman's attorney very very well. So if anybody would have known about that, I think it probably would have been me. Um, there's a chance that they could have had a conversation about it, but I don't think there was ever any serious consideration at all uh, on George's part. In fact, I'm a hundred percent sure of that. Okay. Now, to the matches uh, themselves, the, the first wrestler out to the ring uh, was Too Cold Scorpio, wearing pants that proudly displayed the Stars and Stripes, so he was clearly very American. 
And when he gets to the ring, he mounts the turnbuckle and points towards the crowd. My friend Mike Breen, who was there at the time, he's also been on this podcast, he misremembered that as if uh, Too too Cold Scorpio had made a machine gun motion towards the VIP box. But when you look at the video, it looks more like he's doing a dab gesture, but without lowering his head. But I guess some North Koreans could have interpreted that as an aggressive gesture. Do you remember that? I don't. You know, it didn't stand out on me at the time, but I can certainly understand in retrospect how it could have been interpreted that way you know i know two gold scorpio and none, none of the talent were there everybody that was there wanted to put on a great show nobody wanted to do anything controversial i mean we talked about it you know we knew what we were getting into and believe me nobody wanted to end up in a north korean prison so for the most part everybody was pretty much on their best behavior so any of that type of gesture that could have been misinterpreted really would have been just a misinterpretation again because the audience wasn't familiar with the product or the or the talent now unfortunately on the two-hour video you don't get a lot of audience shots like you normally do on a, for example a, you know if you look at the wwe today half of the show is is looking at the audience and and their reactions and uh, but you know, when you do get to see the North Korean audience here on the Collision in Korea video, they're not really into it. They're kind of confused a bit. How did? What sense did you get from being there in the in the stadium at the time? Well, it was exactly what I said. You know, the what you said. The the audience was confused because they didn't know what they were watching. It, 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 it's just hard. I can't even draw a parallel because. <laughs> None of us have ever been in a situation where we saw a spectacle like that that we had never seen or heard of before. The North Koreans were being exposed to something that would be, I guess, the only thing I could think of is if, you know, a group of Martians, you know, or aliens landed in my backyard and, you know, put on a concert. You know, nobody knew how to react to anything, which was really awkward, too, because, you know, professional wrestling is an art form that's all about creating emotion and connecting to the audience and as a performer as a professional wrestler you know you 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 pace your performance you style your performance and execute your performance based on the reactions that you're getting or not getting right and in this environment nobody was getting any reaction because the audience were just stunned and they were stunned and probably dumbfounded and were afraid to react because they didn't know how to. One of the matches uh, involved a tag team match between four Japanese women. Uh, Now, in a North Korean comic book from 1990 that I once read, uh, I've I've read a lot of North Korean comic books, this one's called A Sick and Twisted World. Uh, It depicts a judo match between two women in South Korea, and it's, it's shown as something that only happens in the sick and twisted capitalist world where women become victims to the perverse fetishes of the rich ruling class in order, in order to earn a few dollars. Did North Koreans, uh, at least, you know, did your cultural attache say anything to you or react in a particular way to seeing women wrestlers fight? Not really. Um, the attache that was with me during the event, um, we really didn't uh, talk too much. And she spoke, uh, she was fairly fluent in English, so th- there was no no barrier there. But once the event started, of course, I was there with, you know, some of the 
people that I worked with at WCW and you know, we were in our own conversations, but there wasn't a lot of conversation between myself and the attache. Now the, the main event, of course, the final uh, match of the, of the, uh, the whole two day affair was um, Antonio Inoki uh, versus Rick Flair. Now you've already told a little bit about the background there that he's, um, he was trained by Ricky Dorzan, who is uh, in Korean is known by uh, the name Ryok Dorsan, and they've got a two-volume comic book on on him that I've read, all about his life story. Uh, how, as you say, he was born in North Korea but became the father of pro wrestling in Japan, uh, and ended up being stabbed at the age of 39 by a member of the Yakuza and then dying quite young. So, uh, in a sense, having Inoki be trained by Ryok Dorsan and and then wrestling an American, it's almost the next best thing to having a North Korean kick an American's ass. <laughs> well, that's probably why Antonio Inoki was able to achieve as much as he did with North Korea. Did, now, did they get? Did the North Korean audience get into that match a bit more? Were they excited by that prospect of having a, a disciple of Ryokuto san uh, you know, whoop an American? I believe so, because there was a, a fair amount of press, you know, and posters and things like that 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 featured Antonio Inoki but didn't feature anybody else so clearly Antonio Inoki was being promoted fairly heavily by North Korean standards uh over there whereas Ric Flair uh, really wasn't nobody knew who Ric Flair was other than he was from America how did you prepare Rick for that match you know I didn't have to prepare Rick too much you know Rick is by that time Rick was in his mid 40s or later 40s, uh, Rick knew Antonio Inoki fairly well. So it was really up to Antonio Inoki and Rick Flair to put that match together themselves. I didn't really involve myself too much in the, you know, that aspect of the performance. So that was, uh, that was really up to Rick and Antonio Inoki. And Rick, Rick, Rick was very familiar and had worked in Japan many, many, many times over the decades. So it, 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 you know, working with Antonio Inoki was not a, a big challenge for Ric Flair. After the show, how did the wrestlers feel about it all? Uh, you know, uh, without that adulation and appreciation response from the crowd, it would have been a bit lacking. Did they find that difficult? They did find it difficult, and I think most of the people, if I remember correctly, that I talked to, most of the guys, you know, they they were of two minds. You know, in the one sense. None of them had ever wrestled in front of 170,000 or 180,000 people. So that the magnitude of the scope and the presentation of the event, what the North Koreans did, you know, within the stadium um, was so magnificent. You know, it rivaled any Olympic ceremony, opening ceremony I've ever seen. So that aspect of it was in, in a very positive way was, you know, mind blowing to them. Uh, but the, inability to connect to that audience and get them to react was disorienting. So, like I said, they were of two minds. On the one hand, it was just the most amazing experience in the world to be wrestling in front of 170 or 180,000 people. But yet, on the other hand, it was like wrestling in front of cardboard cutouts. And that was very, very challenging. And I think by the time the, the event was over, everybody was just dying to get home. Just as a, to give our listeners a sense of comparison, what would be a typical uh, maximum crowd size at an American um, wrestling event? Well, it depends on the event and, and who's promoting it. You know, the WWE, you know, early 90s, I think, put 93,000 in the Pontiac Silverdome. Mm. Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. Um, I think the largest crowd I ever drew 
uh, in the mid nineties was somewhere around 63,000 people, uh, in Atlanta at the Omni, but we'd also wrestled in front of 5,000 and 10,000 people. This all depends on what the event is and where it is. Looking back on it now, 25 years later, because um, last month was exactly 25 years ago, how do you feel looking back on it now? I'm very proud that we did it. I, I, you know, the fact that people are still talking about it to this day. I was recently contacted by National Geographic who wanted to do a special about it, and other television networks over the years have reached out and wanted to discuss it to do features on it. So clearly it was a... It was an important event that that registered on the media Richter scale, even though it was several years afterwards, obviously. But I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of the team of, of wrestlers that went over there with me because it was a risky thing for them to do, too. I mean, people have gone over to North Korea and not come home. You know, it, it, it was not necessarily 100% safe. We felt reasonably safe because of our relationship with New Japan and particularly because of Antonio Inoki, but it was still possible, like I almost got myself into trouble, uh, to do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, and have things kind of spiral out of control. So we were all on eggshells. We knew we were, we knew that our rooms were bugged. We knew that we were being watched constantly. We knew that you know we were being manipulated for the purposes of propaganda. Uh, we're all very well aware of that when we got there. And I think, like I said, by the time you know, I don't remember how many days we were there four or five days, I guess. Uh, by the time our, our trip was over and we were able to get out of the plane, I'll give you one more quick example of just how weird things started off. I forgot to mention it when we landed in Pyongyang, the first thing that the government did was take our passports away from us. In, in reality, it didn't matter because there was no, there were no diplomats in North Korea. There was no embassy, nowhere to go with a passport. You weren't going to leave the country. That's not like you're going to jump on a train and go to China. Um, once you landed, you were la- you were there until they decided to let you leave. But the very idea of taking our passports let us know, in very in no uncertain terms that they were in 100% control of us while we were there. And, you know, you take Americans who are used to the freedom of, you know, Western culture, and particularly in the United States, that, that, was a, that was a shock to the system. And it put everybody on edge. So by the time, like I said, by the time the trip was over, everybody was pretty anxious to get home. And we landed in Tokyo first. We had to get back to Tokyo. I think we had another event or two to do in, in Japan. But even... Yeah, I remember Ric Flair walking off the plane. The first thing he did was kiss the ground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the second thing, he, and the second thing he did was go to a Japanese McDonald's. It's still the same now. I was there just in April last year, and they still take uh, the passports of of all the uh, the tourists uh, until the day you go home. So that hasn't changed in twenty five years. I don't think much will change. Now it's surprising that uh, Collision in Korea isn't legally available on any streaming service, nor has it been released on a DVD. And I, I'm not yet aware of any documentaries that have been made about the f- of the making of the event. Uh, it is a bit surprising. Why is that? You know, I, I I don't know. I've tried over the years when National Geographic reached out to me and wanted to do a, a special on it. Um, I reached out to some friends that I have that are still with some of the larger Japanese television networks. And I think I I don't have a clear picture, but it's my impression that the rights to the event are 
contested, and the event, the the tapes, the master tapes themselves belong to I think it's Fuji Television Network. They're just reluctant because of litigation or other outstanding issues that I wasn't involved in to release them. It's really, really difficult. And unfortunately, a lot of the people associated with the event, Antonio Inoki is obviously still alive, but uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Mr. Baijo who was a dear friend of mine, and he was really the business side of New Japan Pro Wrestling. He would have been someone that I could easily you know, get a lot of information from, but Unfortunately, he passed away several years ago. Masa Saito was a very famous wrestler in Japan who also wrestled, I think, on the card in Korea. Again, was very instrumental in the whole event, but he also passed. So it's it's getting harder and harder now to to reach out to people who are part of this event, you know, on an integral basis um, to, to get their thoughts or, or commentary because so many of them now are Unfortunately, not with us. So, has National Geographic actually made a, a special on the on the collision in Korea? No, they didn't uh, because of the, the issues that I just discussed. Yeah. Now, in September 2014, Antonio Noki went back to Pyongyang with some other wrestlers for a follow-up event called the International Pro Wrestling Festival, which took place in a smaller stadium in Pyongyang. Were you uh, contacted, or has any American company, as far as you were, approached to participate in that? No, not that I'm aware of. And I'm, and I'm glad because I would have felt bad to turn Antonio Inoki down. There would be no reason for me to go back. I experienced it once. I, I satisfied that urge to experience a completely different culture and environment. And now that I have, I have no desire to go back. It, it's kind of a pity, though, that uh, 25 years ago, as I said, there was some hope that uh, U.S. and Japanese relations with North Korea might improve. And yet here we are 25 years later and we're still, you know, stuck uh, back at square one, it seems. And, you know, do you think there's a need for another event like this to get sports diplomacy off the ground again? No, it'll never work. It'll never work. You've probably spent more time in North Korea than I have from the sounds of it. You're not going to unwind 50 plus years of propaganda and, and brainwashing. Look, the government officials that are now running the country were all brainwashed and victims of, victims of propaganda. They don't even know what the real world is like, in my opinion. So I, I, I don't think a sports festival is going to change any of that. I, I don't know what it's going to take to change it. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a politician, but I doubt any kind of sports festival is going to make any kind of difference in that country. By the way, were you really warned by your uh, cultural attaché not to look at or rape any North Korean women? One of the first things, and again, uh, as we got off the plane and we all got into our cars once we were separated into pairs, uh, I was with my a, a good friend of mine. I, I've been friends with him since the 70s. His name is Sonny Ono. He's Japanese. He was born in Japan. We, we got into a car together with our attaché and Within five minutes, uh, our attaché turned around and said, in no uncertain terms, do not stare at our women and do not rape any of our women. I was like, say what? <laughs> you know, in, in my mind, and I know this is going to sound crass and disrespectful, I don't mean it to, but North Korean women are not really attractive because most of them are emaciated. And, you know, it, it's different than in the West. It's different than being in Australia. It's different than even being in Japan. Women don't try to make themselves attractive. And in fact, everything is gray. Everything is the same. Um, I, I, 
being attracted to a, a North Korean woman was the farthest thing from my mind, but I didn't want to say that at the time. Did anyone uh, in the group get in trouble for anything uh, during the, the tour, maybe uh, uh, saying the wrong thing on the phone or uh, drinking too much or shouting at their North Korean cultural attache or something like that? <laughs> With the exception of one individual by the name of Scott Norton. Scott, and I, and I don't know if you read this in my book or if you heard it somewhere else, but Scott Norton, good friend of mine. I knew him before I even got into the wrestling business. We grew up in the same neighborhood together. Had a lot, of, a lot of the same friends. Scott Norton was on the show. He was in his hotel room one night, and he was lucky enough to be able to make a phone call to his wife. Most of us couldn't get out. We tried to make phone calls, and for whatever reason, we weren't able to. But Scott did. It was, it was late in the evening, and the first thing – his wife, unfortunately, his wife is named Tammy. She's a sweetheart. But she thought that Scott was – she thought it was one big party, which wrestlers on the road, typically, it's a little bit like rock and roll. And it can get a little crazy and whatnot. I won't go into any of those details. But his wife had been you know, newly married, recently married. So his wife was on the phone, and she was kind of complaining because he was over there in Korea partying with all his friends and partying with the Korean women and having a great time. And nothing was further from the truth. It was exactly the opposite of that. And Scott was trying to explain to her that none of that was true. And in fact, not only is it not true and we're not partying, here's how, and I won't use the language that he used, but this country is so, let's just say he wasn't kind to the North Koreans, the country, the government, or anything else. And the next morning, Scott got up, went to eat breakfast. He came back, and his entire room was torn apart. Beats off the bed, mattresses on the floor, um, hot water was turned off, phone was disconnected. All of the services were, were, were shut off. And then he was interrogated by the North Korean government down in the basement of the hotel. He thought he was going to go make sandals in a sandal factory for the rest <laughs> of his life. Meanwhile, what were you doing? Uh, you know, on the outside, were you? I didn't. I didn't know it went down. Oh. I had no idea until afterwards. Oh gosh! How, and and it was a couple of hours, and then he was finally released and came and told you all about it. Yes, and he. <laughs> boy, he oh, was boy. of he was of a different frame of mind by the time he got to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, a, a broken shell of a man. Would that be uh, somewhat he close to the truth? A broken shell of a, and Scott Norton, by the way, Scott Norton was about six foot five, about 350, 400 pounds, solid muscle. He was a world professional arm wrestling champion, and he had a voice like a tuba. He had this deep voice, you know, when he talked, he just, you know, he would, he would rattle the pictures off the walls. His voice was so deep and it was so loud. By the time he got to me, it was like talking to an eight year old kid. They put the fear of Kim into him. Yes, indeed, they did. Now, I saw some photos of uh, yourself and Inoki, uh, Ric Flair, and uh, Muhammad Ali visiting political tourist sites in Pyongyang. Usually, people are expected by their North Korean guides to say something, perhaps give a comment or something, praise, uh, you know, some sort of praise. Was that expected in this case as well? Indeed, indeed. And, and there was one in particular I'll never forget. Um, there was a, a monument that looked like the Arc de Triomphe in, in Paris. Mm, oh, yes. And you you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, the Kaesong Moon. Uh, I've I've run through that when we did the uh, the marathon last year. Uh, 
through or next to, anyway, very close to it. And I've been up there. It's a, it's an incredible piece of architecture. Well, if my memory serves me correctly, and it was 25 years ago, so if I miss a detail or two, forgive me. But sure. we, we were taken to that monument and given its history, and we were told that the monument was built as a memorial to the tens of thousands of North Koreans that were murdered by the Americans during the Korean War, during a, a bombing raid. And then the North Korean interpreter, who was basically a news person or propaganda person, was telling us this entire story and asking us if we felt responsible or how we felt about that. And it was really an awkward position to be in because, number one, we weren't familiar with that fact, if indeed it was even a fact. I yeah. highly doubt it was. But we knew that we were on camera and we knew that the North Koreans expected us to be polite and respectful and acknowledge what they were telling us. But deep down inside, none of us believed it. So, yeah, indeed, they took us on all kinds of tours of Korean, uh, North Korean historical sites. And we were educated, if you will, indoctrinated as to what these sites meant and what they meant to the North Koreans and all of that. On the last day when you, when you finally, uh, you know, the whole group went there to, to fly out of, uh, of Pyongyang, what was that like? Well, I've never been to prison, but I would imagine it would be a little bit like being in prison for quite a while and getting out for the very first time in many, many, many years. So, and I don't, look, I've got to be careful because I don't want to make it sound like it was the worst thing in the world. There were many things I loved about it and I'm grateful for. And I'm very, very happy that I did it. But there, there comes a point when you realize just how much control the government has over you when you're from the West, like we are, it has an effect on you. And you, I, I'll speak for myself. I can't wait to get the hell out. You know what I mean? I, I could never imagine it. I, I'm glad that we weren't there another 48 hours because then it would have gotten to be a little difficult. You said you were uh, there for what, about five days in total? Four or five days. Were you or was anybody asked to give a, a kind of a final uh, comment or statement uh, on the way out? I wasn't. And I'm, I'm, you know, the, the Korean, North Koreans did a pretty good job of keeping us all separate from each other. So th there were conversations and things happening with Ric Flair and Muhammad Ali over here. And there was something happening with Antonio Noki and myself over there. And we often were separated. So there were a lot of things going on that we weren't necessarily all together while, while they were happening. So n not for me. I'll just speak for myself. I wasn't asked to make any particular speeches or statements or, or anything like that. Okay, well, that's probably about all I've got to ask, and I don't want to keep you uh, too much longer. A any final thoughts to share with us? No, yeah, you know, it's just uh, since being in North Korea, uh, I probably pay more attention. Actually, I subscribe to, you know, several North Korean newspapers uh, online. Uh, I don't read them every day, but I do check in every once in a while. I get a kick out of reading you know, the, the North Korean news or their version of news. But I do pay pretty close attention, you know, geopolitically as to what's going on over there. It's, it's kind of a frightening situation. Uh, even most recently with, with uh, the illness or that, that was taking place. And, you know, it's a volatile country. And again, it's run by essentially a military organization 
that are a product of the propaganda that has proliferated since the early 50s. And when you have people whose minds are that malformed and their vision of the world is that malformed, yet they have nuclear weapons, it's a pretty frightening thing. It is a fascinating place, uh, which is why I'm uh, I'm very happy and lucky to be making this podcast in which I talk to people every week about it. We did a, a special episode uh, two weeks ago about you know where is Kim Jong Un when he was uh, you know out of sight, uh, talking about that. So we hope that if you are still interested in uh, in news about North Korea, that you'll check out the NK News website uh, afterwards. I definitely will. I definitely will. Well, thank you once again, Eric Bischoff, for joining me today on the NK News podcast. It was an amazing opportunity for me to talk to you and learn more about Collision in Korea. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. For our listeners, we have some bonus material. I have uh, an interview here with Nick Bonner, who you all remember from episode 64 of the NK News podcast, which was our first and so far only video episode uh, when Nick came over to Seoul to talk about his Made in Chorson exhibition. You can find that all uh, on YouTube, of course, if you just look for Made in Chorson or NK News podcast episode 64. Uh, Nick, can you believe it's already been viewed a whopping 689 times? Well, <laughs> if, if you can only force all of your uh, past and present and future Cordial Tours customers to watch it, I'm sure we'll double that in no time. No, that is 688 of them, and the, the ninth is me. <laughs> well, I, I, the seventh is me, my friend. So. <laughs> and, and Chad's got one as well. Anyway, welcome back on the podcast. Thank you Thank for joining you. us. Uh, now, Lovely. I didn't know when I uh, when I set up the interview with Eric Bischoff, I'd forgotten about the fact that you too were there in 1995. Had you already started running tours? Had Was Cordial Tours already a thing back then? Yeah, we started in 93 and I was, Josh was running it, my colleague and uh, I was back at Leeds uh, University sort of Metropolitan University sort of teaching landscape architecture and then we decided right we heard about this this event happening and I decided to chuck it all in in Leeds and come over and we were gonna you know take in the most tourists ever to North Korea and yeah. um, and we did but halfway through what I, what happened was the North Koreans cancelled half the visas because of course half the people traveling with us were journalists yeah. And we ended up, um, instead of making money, we ended up losing quite a large amount because we ended up chartering half a plane. Oh, um, no. So, yeah. So those people <laughs> never got in. They never got in. We changed a few people around uh, who were, um, how can I put it, who, who became plumbers and uh, housewives, etc., who perhaps also had a job part-time sort of writing for newspapers and things. Um, oh, they but, yeah, overnight had the switched end, their professions. Yeah, it's quite quite useful that at the time. <laughs> it was. I wouldn't do that now, but it was it was something that at the time. I mean, it was. You know, we we literally had chartered a plane. We yeah. lost that one, so we needed to fill the other spaces, and and we had to continue. Now, how much uh, how much lead time did you have before the event to uh, to market this? Because this was, of course, all before the era of uh, of big large scale internet uh, uh, sales and marketing and tourism. So, you know, how much time did you have, uh, and how did you, in, in fact, get the word out that uh, this event was coming up and people should come along? Yeah, we we had at least eight months, uh, if I remember, and there was uh, one event in 
England we sort of tried to sell it to, to a very bemused travel market who mm. you know, thought you couldn't even travel to the country, let alone go and watch a wrestling match there. And of course, a peace event, it was marketed it as. And when you put peace and wrestling together, that's yeah. a bit incongruous for most people. In the end, it got around onto the sort of network of journalists and, and they, they became interested. And, and of course, friends and, and people around Beijing, because we at that time were running a club in Beijing. Uh-huh. And, uh, and and so a lot of them came. Yeah, me, me, most people sort of not not an interest. I don't think we had one person who was interested in wrestling. Most people were, of course, just interested in travelling to North Korea. And how many? You said you you brought in the largest number of foreign tourists for this event. How many foreign tourists did you eventually manage to get in there after half of them had had their visas cancelled before leaving Beijing? Yeah, we had 120. Uh, around 120 people and we sort of recruited friends as tour guides who'd never been to North Korea at that time um, wow. but we were giving them good briefings but it was myself Josh and then some chums and and the same actually for the North Koreans they they never had so many people and so they also had to recruit basically anyone who who spoke English as a you know as a, as a guide and there were some classic cases of people from the Ministry of uh, uh, foreign affairs, etc., becoming mm. guides and and their interaction with foreigners was quite quite beautiful. And you said that there was some uh, some funny interactions with uh, with some of the people who hadn't normally been guides. Yeah, well, I think I think also sort of a, a, a few countries who will remain nameless maybe put a couple of people in who were sort of there to see what was going on in the country because at that time, of course, sort of without satellite. Uh, access or the access they have nowadays. I think people wanted to sort of have a little nose around. And there was one sort of perfectly pristine a couple from America, almost too clean to be to be believable. And uh, and uh, the, this guy from the um, Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs then told them said, "You do think you will be returning to your country?" And 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 <laughs> and he winked at me with absolute you know humour, but to the, to the screams of these two in front, it's sort of. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, this is sort of I think this is the difference between, you know, how they will report the story and how I would report the story. This is so we all yes. we also sort of change things as we uh, experience the country more and more. And there is a great deal of humor there. There is actually a great deal of color and laughter, of course, uh, kept in very uh, confined areas. But it is there. right now. How about the, the wrestling event, the two day uh, collision in Korea wrestling event itself? What was your memory of that? You've heard the interview uh, with Eric. <laughs> Bishop, how did you remember it? I think um, Eric's actually got it spot on. I, I mean, we were, and not only the North Korean audience you know, had never seen wrestling, I'd never seen wrestling apart from sort of, I think, Giant Haystacks, who was a, uh, an English sort of wrestler. And mm. I didn't realize, so I, was, I was being questioned by the North Koreans, is, is this real? What is going on? And, yeah. and one of my guys said, you know, someone will be killed if this goes on like this. Oh, but yeah. in fact, most of us sat there quite quite bored. I mean, we were, we were down, they filled the stadium. And this is, I think, where this 150,000 seater came from. The, the, the stadium isn't a 150,000 seater. It is if you put back about 50,000 seats, you know, on the football pitch. Oh, and that's where we were all yeah. sat. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was bizarre. I, I think that, you know, speaking to people, most people were bored. You know, it was okay for a bit, but, but and that's Westerners, our group. And, you know, if you're not into wrestling, it, mm. it's just, just bizarre. And at the end, as I walked out with uh, a, a, a Miss Kim, she said to me, you know, was that real? And, and, I, and I said, no, I, I don't think it was. She said, that's, that's good. I'm glad about that, <laughs> at least. But they, yeah, it was, 
it was it, it just didn't make sense to anybody. And my other friends, North Korean friends, said you know they did watch it in Pyongyang. I don't know if it was aired elsewhere, but you know they they also watched it and probably the same sort of thing because Saram also know, in Pyongyang it wasn't actually televised, was it? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, my chum saw it on TV, so yes. I don't yeah. think it was, it may not have been blasted around the rest of the country. But of right. course, you know, Korean wrestling itself is, is, is a real, is real wrestling. You know, you're, you're sort of trying to knock your opponent down and, and it, it's serious stuff. Uh, and it doesn't last that long. You don't have people jumping up from wires and pounding onto people. So it, it, it was, what they were expecting and what they got were very different things. They they knew it was wrestling, but not as not as they know it. Now, did you meet? Uh, did you manage to uh, uh, meet with or interact with uh, Antonio Inoki or uh, Muhammad Ali or any of those people? Yeah, we saw them around, but I mean, you know, we kept our distance. That was sort of Muhammad Ali was walking around the city. We bumped into him in a few times and places, but he was there. You know, there was a bit of an entourage going on there. Inoki, I've, I've seen a few times, been on a plane, sat next to him on a plane. It's, it's like sitting next to Lurch. He's a big bloke. Uh, yeah. You wouldn't want to get an argument with him when you look at the size of his hands and, and his physical size. I also saw him at this recent wrestling event, which was... Uh, the one in 2014? On. Yeah, yeah. And the same sort of reaction, really. I mean, they, they, they put on the, you know, the Koreans put on the big sort of the big show for them. But I, I think it leaves most people a bit confused. I've I've never had a North Korean guy, you know, ask me about, you know, wrestling. What what's it about? You know, tell me more stories or what's going on in the, in the the Federation of Wrestling. Uh, it's it just draws a bit of a blank. But their wrestling, of course, remains massively popular. You know, that's televised, and everyone going for the gold, the, the price of the golden the bell, yeah. and the ball. Yeah. But, I, I can't but, help but thinking though that, that that some people must have had some idea because I know they've they've got um, uh, a biography of Ricky Dawson and the uh, two volume uh, comic book about Ricky Dawson who was the uh, the man mm -hmm. who uh, who trained uh, Antonio Noki. So there must have been a few people that had some idea of what uh, professional yeah, wrestling was about. No, I, I, they made a film also. You know, it was, it, and in the film it looks quite serious. You know, it's 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 not showing you know the the fake drops and things it looks like mm. wrestling there so if they saw it on the film that looks just like a very nasty fight it doesn't look you know like a fun you know like this is being put on for for, for a show showmanship yeah. sort of stuff so i think no I don't, I don't think they really did have this idea i think they thought that that was wrestling you know, basically you know get up some step ladders and jump onto your opponent uh, that's the way it goes that's you know it's just tougher but it, it's not a show. So I don't know. I have never met a North, a North Korean wrestling fan. Uh, so yeah. uh, I've been there a few times. Have you ever been uh, inspired to, uh, to you know, maybe host some other kind of larger cultural event there in uh, in Pyongyang? Like, I don't know, maybe bringing over a, a West End musical to Pyongyang and staging it there or something like that? Yeah, but, uh, I think in North Korea, I think... For us, you know, it would be very hard to do less engagement in North Korea. There, there is almost nothing that goes on. So in small ways, we've been involved with things like the New York Philharmonic and bits and pieces like that. But the thing is, this has never been a continued dialogue, uh, engagement with North Korea. And it, and it should have been. I mean, since I've been there in 93, with a small amount of money, we could have done so much and embassies could have done so much. But it, for them, it's been... It's so linked to politics that, you know, they'll do things when things are good. And they'll, and they'll certainly for, for this last period with the nuclear issues, nothing. 
And I think that's wrong. I, I'm very, very, I, I've seen the impact that, that um, engagement has, and it's very positive. It influences people, it wakes people up. Um, and by doing nothing, you just allow the system. I think as Eric said, you know, he, he put it beautifully, uh, it, it's so isolated that all they hear is their own rhetoric. And you've mm. got to bring things new into that country. So, yeah, I'm up for it. Of course, it's impossible to do now. There's no funding and there's, uh, there's of course, sanctions. Sanctions, right. So I think it's, 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 it's basically the stick without the carrot and not probably the best way to go ahead. You also you just mentioned a few minutes ago uh, Morton Travick's uh, effort in putting on that concert there with the band Lieback. I, I interviewed him on the podcast last year. Uh, I, I recommend all listeners to go and watch the film Liberation Day. It's a, a fascinating insight into the frustrations uh, uh, and, and some of the rewards of cultural in, uh, interaction with North Korea. But uh, I, I, the reason I bring, bring us back to that is because I think it was only about a month ago uh, that the cultural official who was helping Morton in his efforts, who was sort of on Morton's side and uh, mm -hmm. liaising between Morton and the censors. This uh, Mr. Kim, I've forgotten his full name, yeah, but uh, he's, yeah, he's just passed away quite recently, hasn't he? He's, he's sort of fixed all sorts of people from journalists, Raph Wober, and uh, a lot of us, yeah, a really, really delightful character. Um, but it, yeah, it's a very, it's a highly pressurized job. Um, it, it's a, you know, it's a, you're out drinking, you're having to cruise all the time. It's a tough one. And uh, yeah, you're, you're acting in the middle in a country where it's a very, very difficult place to be in the middle because you shouldn't mm. be taking sides. But there are, you know, there are amazing people there in, in North Korea. This is why all of us, yourself, ourselves, we, we get involved with North Korea because there are incredible individuals who uh, are happy to see engagement uh, go on. And the fact, you know, that that uh, there isn't any engagement is just a sad, just sadness. You know, we, the, the things we're stuck with now are the, you know, the every year now there's an international film festival. We're trying to do a children's film festival. We were trying for it this year, we'll try again next year. And there are people who want to do it. You know, they're happy to have that. They're not saying we want to change our system. They're just saying we're happy to have foreign product coming into the country, foreign culture coming into the country. Well, Nick, I appreciate you uh, being available for our, uh, our our Skype chat today and filling in some uh, different perspectives on what it was like to be there at Collision in Korea, but on the uh, the tourism side, not the uh, the event management side. The uh, just talking to you about uh, uh, the event there, the Collision in Korea event of '95, it, it reminds me how different people remember different things in such a way. You know, when I was uh, interviewing Eric, and he was talking about. Um, seeing a desert in North Korea on the way in. Now, internally, I said to myself, oh, he's probably thinking about how all the trees were cut down and everything was denuded. But, you know, I, I couldn't pull him up on that because it would have made the whole interview a lot longer. And we would to, to, to focus on details like that would have uh, yeah, been beside yeah, the yeah. point, you know. I think what it is, when you come in in April, it, it's a totally brown landscape. I mean, it, it isn't a wood. When you come in on that plane, it's... Mm. it's the, the rice paddies are, are brown. The whole landscape is brown. So it looks, uh, and there are no trees. Yeah, everything is, 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 is bare. And, and it, it's not until that incredible change, when the first, basically when the first rains come, that everything suddenly springs into that live green. So, yeah, he is right. In a way, it is. It's, you know, if you go there foraging for food in, um, you know, March, April, there's going to be nothing there. It's just, a, yeah. it is a, a dry, a, almost like dust bowl, I suppose, but might be more, um, more apt. 
All right. Well, that is uh, that brings me to the end of our interview today. I appreciate you once again, uh, Nick. It's great to talk to you as always. Uh, we hope that uh, you'll be able to go back into the north as soon as possible once the crisis is over and come back and visit us here in uh, in Seoul. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Jacko. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.